0: Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com highyieldfamilymedicine, link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the High Yield Family Medicine podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing an overview of some of the most high-yield things you need to know for the NBME as it pertains to the well-child exam. Included in this episode will be a breakdown on the developmental milestones in young children, general aspects of pubertal development, some key points on anticipatory guidance, going over vaccine schedules, and learning how to identify signs of child abuse. We'll be going over all of that and more today, so if you're finding this information helpful, please consider subscribing. If you subscribe right now, you'll be helping the algorithm to reach other students who may also find it helpful. And in doing so, you'll be helping to make the world a smarter place. Thank you. And now, my friends, let's begin our discussion on the Well Child exam. We'll kick things off by talking about developmental milestones. Every Well Child visit is an opportunity for providers to assess the child's development across five general domains. Gross motor, fine motor, language, cognitive, and social-emotional slash behavioral. It's important to be aware of these milestones as a delay or regression in any of these domains may be an indication for a more in-depth assessment and or intervention. For example, if there is a delay in speech, a hearing test may be indicated in order to rule out deafness. Motor delays may be indicative of an underlying nerve or muscle pathology. Social delays, like avoiding eye contact, may indicate autism spectrum disorder and regressions of any kind may be indicative of an underlying metabolic or degenerative disorder, but may also be due to certain stresses on the body, such as a recent hospitalization or an unsafe home environment. A few things to keep in mind are that premature infants should have their age corrected in order to correspond to their gestational age, and that children who grow up in bilingual homes may have an initial delay in speech development, but in most cases will eventually become proficient in one or both languages by the age of five. With that in mind, let's now go through the chronology of some of these developmental milestones. By one month of age, the baby should be able to establish eye contact. By two months, they should be able to vocalize, have a social smile, lift their head up while laying prone, and turn their head over in response to certain sights and sounds. By four months, they should be able to fully roll over and regard their hands. By six months, they should be able to sit up unsupported make babbling sounds, and use their hands to bring objects to their mouth. By nine months, they should be able to use a pincer grasp, be able to crawl, be able to say mama and dada, and be able to play the game peekaboo. By 12 months, they should be starting to learn how to walk, know how to say one to three words, and be able to follow simple one-step commands. Also by 12 months, they will begin to develop separation anxiety, And the way this can show up on an exam is they will describe a mom who is very concerned that her baby cries inconsolably whenever left with someone whom they're not very familiar with. And the correct answer here is to provide reassurance, as this is a totally normal response for their age. By two years of age, they should be able to run, walk up and down stairs, copy a line on a piece of paper, kick a ball, build a tower using three blocks, speak in two to three word sentences, say their own name, have about half of their speech understood by strangers, and be able to parallel play with other children. By three years, they should be able to copy a circle, ride a tricycle, build a tower using six blocks, speak in sentences, have about three quarters of their speech understood by strangers, play in groups, and be able to participate in simple games like hide and seek. By four years of age, they should be able to identify body parts, copy a cross on a piece of paper, hop on one foot, have their speech completely understood by strangers, and be able to tell stories. By age five, they should be able to copy a triangle, catch a ball, partially dress themselves, and write their own name. And by age six, they should be able to draw a person with six body parts, tie their shoes, skip and be able to differentiate left from right. In addition to general surveillance of these milestones, there are also certain screening tests that are implemented at various times in early childhood, such as the ages and stages questionnaire, ASQ, and the Modified Checklist for Autism Screening in Toddlers, or MCHAT. Let's jump ahead now to puberty. Puberty is the process of sexual maturation and usually begins between the ages of 8 to 13 for females and 9 to 14 in males. In the prepubescent years, there is tonic inhibition of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GNRH, from the hypothalamus, in part mediated by the inhibitory hormone prolactin. But once this inhibition is removed, then pulsatile secretions of GNRH can act on the anterior pituitary in order to release luteinizing hormone, LH, and follicle-stimulating hormone, FSH, which then act on the gonads in order to produce the sex-specific hormones responsible for the physical changes of puberty. The physical changes of puberty follow a predictable pattern and sequence that can be assessed using the Tanner Scale, which is a standardized five-point system that demarcates changes in breast size, pubic hair, and genitals that encompass the wide range of changes that are seen from the prepubescent age to fully mature adolescence. In females, the first sign of puberty is thelarche or breast development and this is caused by an increase in estrogen and progesterone from the ovaries that act to stimulate lactiferous duct proliferation with a corresponding increase in breast size. Oftentimes, the size of each breast will be slightly asymmetrical due to varying levels of hormones, and this is a normal finding that often persists into adulthood. About six months after thalarchy comes pubarchy, or the development of pubic hair. Pubic hair will initially present as sparse light vellus hair eventually becoming thick dark coarse terminal hairs puberty in females is caused by the androgen hormones dihydroepiandosterone DHEA and dihydroepiandrone sulfate DHEIS. and these are also responsible for contributing to oily skin acne and body odor Axillary hairs are also produced from androgen hormones, and usually begin to develop about two years after the onset of pubarchy. After thelarchy and pubarchy comes menarche, or the first menstrual period, which normally occurs around one to three years after the onset of thalarchy, at an average age of about 12. The reason why menarche comes this long after the onset of puberty is, is because it takes several cycles of endometrial growth in response to fluctuating estrogen levels until there is enough tissue wherein withdrawal of estrogen results in deciduation. If menarche presents prior to either thalarche or pubarche, then investigation should be done in order to rule out sexual abuse, genital trauma, hormone-secreting tumors, or possible bleeding disorders. Let's now talk about puberty in males. The first sign of puberty in males is typically an increase in testicular size, from a prepubescent size of about 1.5 milliliters per testi until reaching an adult size of about 20 milliliters. And this increase in size is due to development of the seminiferous tubules in response to FSH on the Sertoli cells. Puberty in males typically occurs around the same time as testicular enlargement, and similar to females, will begin as sparse, light vellus hair that eventually becomes thick, dark, coarse terminal hairs. In addition to adrenal hormones, males during this time will also have the influence of testosterone produced by the Leydig cells in response to LH, which also contributes to pubarchy. Similar to females, male axillary hair won't begin to develop until approximately two years after pubarchy, and the combined androgen effects in males will result in chest and facial hair development, as well as the typical oily skin, acne, and body odor of puberty. Sometimes males going through puberty will develop gynecomastia, or breast bud development, and this is in response to fluctuating hormone levels. If gynecomastia is found in a male of pubertal age, then there's nothing to do here as these will eventually go away on their own within a few months to years. Another very important aspect about puberty is height assessment. Short stature is defined as a height that is in the third percentile or less for their age, And by far and away, the two most common causes for short stature are familial short stature and constitutional growth delay. Familial short stature, also known as genetic short stature, occurs equally in both males and females. And this is when the patient's height is just naturally short because one or both of their parents are also short. Contrast this to constitutional growth delay, or the so-called late bloomers. And this is more commonly seen in males who just haven't hit their growth spurt yet. In constitutional growth delay, these kids will eventually go on to reach their normal adult height without any additional intervention. In cases where you're not sure whether you're dealing with familial short stature or constitutional growth delay, then one potential test you might see is a bone age assessment, which is where you take an x-ray of the non-dominant hand and compare the bone lengths to a standardized average for their age. In familial short stature, the bone age will be the same as their chronological age. And in constitutional growth delay, the bone age is delayed by a few years as compared to their chronological age. In either case, however, the treatment is almost always reassurance. The only reason you might want to treat males with constitutional growth delay is if there is a significant psychosocial stress rooted from their height, in which case some providers may opt for a short course of intramuscular testosterone. And then there's pathological short stature, which is when there is some other factor preventing them from reaching their full height potential such as hypothyroidism, chronic illness or malnutrition, bone disease, such as achondroplasia, a chromosomal abnormality, or precocious puberty, also known as early puberty. We'll talk a bit more about precocious puberty in just a minute, but the reason why it causes short stature is that early exposure to sex hormones like testosterone will accelerate the maturation process of long bones, which causes an initial period of accelerated growth But in the long run will prematurely age the bones and prevent them from reaching their full potential on the other end of the spectrum we have individuals who are really tall for their age the most common cause for this is familial tall stature which is just the opposite of familial short stature wherein one or both parents are also really tall then there's gigantism which is basically when acromegaly happens in kids and this is caused by a growth hormone secreting pituitary adenoma which can be identified on a brain MRI and is often associated with headaches, nausea, vomiting, and visual changes, particularly bilateral hemianopia, which is when there is compression on the body of the optic chiasm, causing a loss of the outer halves of each eye's visual field, for which the treatment is surgery and radiation. The only difference between gigantism and acromegaly is the timing of when the adenoma occurs. As gigantism occurs due to excess growth hormone release prior to the epiphyseal closure of long bones whereas in adults with acromegaly their long bones are already mature and so the structures most commonly affected are facial bones and hand bones often presenting as an adult who can't fit into their hat or gloves anymore let's now talk about delayed puberty delayed puberty in females is defined as a lack of breast development by age 13 over 4 years between thelarche and puberty completion, or no menarche by age 16. Delayed puberty in males is defined as no testicular enlargement by age 14, or more than 5 years between testicular enlargement and puberty completion. The most common cause for delayed puberty in both males and females is hypogonadotropic hypogonadism caused by a functional delay in the pulsatile secretion of GnRH from the hypothalamus, resulting in downregulation of the entire HPG axis. The classic presentation for functional hypogonadotropic hypogonadism is either in a teenager with anorexia nervosa or a young athlete that is extremely active, such as a long-distance runner. These patients will typically have a BMI below 17.5, And in women, the most common presenting symptom is with a complaint of primary amenorrhea, which is a failure of menarche, as opposed to secondary amenorrhea, which is defined as a delay in menstruation for over 3 months in someone who is previously menstruating, the most common cause for which is pregnancy. Another cause of delayed puberty in females can be from primary ovarian failure, and this results in a hypergonadotropic hypogonadism. And this is because they don't have the usual negative feedback inhibition by estrogen on the hypothalamus, causing the hypothalamus to secrete more and more GnRH. Causes for primary ovarian failure can be from chromosomal abnormalities like Turner syndrome, prior radiation to the ovaries to treat malignancy, and autoimmune destruction of the ovaries. And this should be suspected especially for girls with other concurrent autoimmune disorders, such as diabetes mellitus type 1, or Hashimoto's thyroiditis. There's also an association with galactosemia, which we talked about in episode 18, which is highly correlated with primary ovarian insufficiency later in life. So keep that in the back of your mind as well. These causes for hypogonadism tend to be permanent, and treatment is with oral estrogen therapy until breakthrough vaginal bleeding occurs, at which time you can switch to a combined estrogen progesterone therapy for monthly withdrawal bleeding. Anatomical defects may also cause primary amenorrhea. One example of this can be from Mullerian agenesis, wherein a vaginal ultrasound reveals absence of uterine or vaginal structures in females with otherwise normal signs of female puberty. And then there are cases of blockages of the vaginal introitus, preventing the normal flow of blood, most commonly caused by an imperforate hymen, which can be detected by asking the patient to valsalva in order to reveal a bulging distended membrane, Which can be treated by creating a cruciate incision and then there's androgen insensitivity syndrome which is when an individual with xy chromosomes will present as a phenotypic female with primary amenorrhea except on ultrasounds they will have a blind ending vagina with no uterus along with undescended testes in either the inguinal canal or lower abdomen which should be surgically removed in order to reduce the risk of malignancy now let's talk about delayed puberty in males we already discussed functional hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, which is the most common cause, but if this is also seen in a male with a concurrent lack of smell, or anosmia, then this is suspicious for a rare X-length disorder known as Coleman syndrome, which is a congenital failure of the hypothalamic neurons to produce GnRH, and these patients will require lifelong hormonal replacement. And then there's hypergonadotropic hypogonadism in males, caused by primary testicular failure, and this will result in low levels of testosterone, but with high levels of LH and FSH due to a loss of negative feedback. The most common cause for primary gonadal failure in males is due to Klinefelter syndrome, karyotype 47XXY, which we discuss more in episode 12, and these men will tend to have associated developmental delays and behavioral issues. Other causes for primary gonadal failure could be from prior exposure to radiation of the testes in treatment of malignancy, prior surgery to correct cryptorganism or torsion, or in an unvaccinated individual who has a history of orchitis from a mumps infection. Now let's talk about precocious puberty, or early-onset puberty. Precocious puberty is defined as onset of puberty with secondary sexual characteristics prior to age 8 in girls and prior to age 9 in boys. Precocious puberty is much more commonly seen in females, in which most cases are idiopathic, whereas in males, most cases of precocious puberty are usually a sign of an underlying pathology. Precocious puberty can be broken down into central and peripheral causes, or put another way, causes that are dependent on excessive GnRH and those that are not. Central precocious puberty may be caused by tumors of the hypothalamus that secrete excessive amounts of GnRH, most common of which is a hypothalamic hamartoma, which is commonly associated with gelastic seizures, which are a subtype of partial seizure characterized by bouts of uncontrollable laughter. Then there's peripheral causes of precocious puberty, and these are due to excessive amounts of hormones that are independent of the HPG axis, And the key to differentiate these from central causes of precocious puberty is that they will all have low levels of LH, reflective of ongoing negative feedback on the hypothalamus. Peripheral precocious puberty can be caused by hormone-producing tumors of the testes and ovaries, particularly sex cord stromal tumors and germ cell tumors. And can also be caused by congenital adrenal hyperplasias, most common of which is a deficiency in 21 hydroxylase, resulting in high levels of 17-hydroxyprogesterone, which we go into much more detail on in episode 15. Or from exogenous exposure to sex steroids, which will usually be evident by the history, such as if the question stem mentions that a male in the family has recently started taking testosterone replacement therapy with a topical skin gel, which can easily spread to other people if one isn't careful. Let's now shift gears a bit and talk about some general points pertaining to anticipatory guidance. All parents, especially new parents, should be educated on various age-appropriate topics that cover things which promote health and prevent illness, injury, or death of the child. In terms of nutrition, mothers of children under 1 years old should be encouraged to breastfeed. Maternal benefits of breastfeeding include decreased risk of breast and ovarian cancer, diabetes, and hypertension, and benefits to the baby are that they get their mom's antibodies particularly iga antibodies and they have a lower risk of developing ear infections asthma and type 1 diabetes if mom chooses to exclusively breastfeed for the first few months then it's also important to recommend supplemental vitamin d drops as breast milk does not contain adequate amounts of vitamin d needed for proper calcium and phosphorus absorption which can lead to rickets at four to six months Fruits, cereals, and other soft baby foods can start to be introduced. Cow's milk should not be introduced prior to 12 months, as it can lead to occult intestinal bleeding, and babies should never have honey before 12 months either, due to the risk of ingesting botulism spores. Iron deficiency is the most common cause of anemia in children, and is typically seen in children who drink more than 24 ounces of cow's milk in a day, have iron-restricted diets or if they were born preterm or had a low birth weight. Lead screening is done in early childhood with a blood test, with a serum lead level greater than five micrograms per deciliter being consistent with lead toxicity. Other things to look out for include whether or not they live in a home built prior to 1978, which is the year lead-based house paint became illegal, if they live near an industrial site like a battery plant, or if someone close to them has recently been treated for lead poisoning. And what is the first-line treatment for mild to moderate lead toxicity in children? That's right, it's succimer, which is a lead chelator indicated in children with serum lead levels greater than 45 micrograms per deciliter. Very good. Some other high-yield things to remember are the leading causes of death in children. For children younger than 1 that survive beyond the perinatal period, the leading cause of death is sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. For this reason, it's important to advise parents to have their infants sleep on their back. In addition, babies should always be sleeping in their own crib or bassinet, never in the same bed as a parent. Their mattress should be firm, and besides a small blanket, there should be nothing else in the crib, such as pillows, thick heavy blankets, fluffy toys, etc., as these can all be sources of suffocation. For children over the age of one, the leading cause of death is from accidents and injuries. For this reason, as children learn to crawl and walk, it's important to block off stairways, lock up any cabinets that may contain cleaning supplies, medications, or other potential poisons, stow away any firearms unloaded in a locked safe, keep matches and lighters away from children's reach, and always use a helmet whenever riding a bike, scooter, etc. Smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors should be in every home, any home with a pool should be fenced off, The water boiler should be set at or below 120 degrees Fahrenheit in order to avoid scalding injuries, and all caregivers should be trained in CPR in case of emergency. In terms of car seats, local guidelines vary, but the American Academy of Family Physicians recommends the following. Infants and toddlers should always be in rear-facing car seats. Once they reach two years and are at least 40 pounds, they can then switch to a forward-facing car seat. Once they outgrow the forward-facing car seat, they may then switch to a booster seat. Once they reach age 8 and are at least 4'9", they can then transition to sitting in a regular back seat as long as they are able to sit with their back flat against the back of the seat with their knees bent at the edge of the seat. And finally, children younger than 13 should always sit in the rear seat and never up in the front. Next up, let's discuss a very sad but very real aspect of providing for children, and that's to always be vigilant for signs of child abuse. Signs of child abuse can sometimes be subtle, but if there is any reasonable suspicion that as a healthcare provider you are mandated to report your suspicion to Child Protective Services, even if you are not absolutely certain that abuse has actually taken place. Child abuse can affect families of any socioeconomic backgrounds, but in general it is more commonly seen in children under two years old, children with disabilities, children of parents with depression or other mental disorders, and families without good social support systems. Child abuse can be broken down into four broad categories, neglect, physical, sexual, and psychological. Neglect is the most common form of child abuse, and this can be demonstrated by a child with poor oral hygiene, malnutrition, untreated diaper rash, or other untreated wounds. Physical abuse can be inferred from certain types of injuries, none of which are exactly pathognomonic for abuse, but if identified, should strongly raise your suspicion. So let's run through some of those now. Posterior rib fractures. Classic metaphysial lesions, which are cumulative microfractures across the metaphysial plates of long bones that result from when the child's torso is held in place while the limbs are shaken back and forth. Retinal hemorrhages which are one-third of the classic triad of shaken baby syndrome, the other two being subdural hematoma and hypoxic encephalopathy. Burn marks, especially burn marks with sharp lines of demarcation, indicating immersion into scalding water as opposed to accidental splash burns. Bruising in non-ambulatory children. Bruising on the torso, ear, or neck in children under 4 years old, whereas bruising of the knees, legs, and bony prominences of the head are more likely to be the result from an accident. And finally, injuries that are inconsistent with the given story, especially when there's multiple injuries of various stages of healing. If physical abuse is suspected, then the next step is to perform a skeletal survey, which is a series of 21 x-ray views in order to identify any other potential fractures. In the last two categories, sexual abuse and psychological abuse, may be less readily apparent, as they don't always have associated physical signs. Identifying children who are abused early and getting them away from harmful environments is the best chance of giving them the help they need. But despite this, abused children will often go on to have higher rates of depression, conduct disorder, substance abuse disorder, and poor academic performance later in life. Okay, and for the last topic of the day, let's now shift our attention to vaccine schedules. The first vaccine children usually receive is the hepatitis B vaccine, which is given while they are still in the hospital shortly after birth. If during this time the mother is also found to be positive for hep B surface antigen, then this is indicative of an active hep B infection in the mother, which, if transmitted to the baby, carries a 90% risk for chronic infection. So in these cases, the baby should also receive hep B immune globulins in addition to the vaccine. At one month of age, all babies should receive their second round of the hep B vaccine. Then, at two months, a whole bunch of vaccine series start, including DTaP, which is a combination of diphtheria, tetanus, and acellular pertussis, haemophilus influenza type B, pneumococcal conjugate, inactivated poliovirus, and rotavirus. Firstly, be careful not to confuse DTaP with TDaP because while they both infer immunity against the same organisms, DTAP is used in younger children, while Tdap is used in older children and adults. One way to remember this is that D comes before T. Tdap comes later and is given once at 11 years old and once every 10 years after that. Tdap also has a few other indications, including for pregnant women during each pregnancy, regardless of when their last Tdap was, caregivers who are around babies if they hadn't had a Tdap in the last 10 years, and for minor wounds management if the patient hasn't had a tetanus-containing vaccine in either the last 10 years or 5 years for major wounds. Now let's talk about the pneumococcal vaccine, of which there's two major types, conjugated and non-conjugated. The conjugate vaccine, of which there's three types, PCV13, PCV15, and PCV20, each utilize a protein sequence that is attached to the pneumococcal antigen, allowing it to be recognized by T helper cells, which then go on to induce B cell differentiation into antibody-secreting plasma cells. The non-conjugate type, PPSV23, only has the polysaccharide component and thus operates independently from T cells. Remembering when to give these various pneumococcal vaccines can be a little bit confusing, but here's a general framework you can follow. In otherwise healthy children, We can use either the conjugate PCV13 or PCV15, and these can be used interchangeably. In children with certain chronic conditions, such as cyanotic congenital heart disease, chronic respiratory disease, or diabetes mellitus, then you wait until the normal pneumococcal conjugate series is complete, and then follow it up with one dose of the polysaccharide PPSV23. In children with immunodeficiencies, such as anyone taking immunosuppressive drugs, Anyone with asplenia, or anyone with one of the many immunodeficiency syndromes we talk about in episode 18, then they would also get the normal pneumococcal conjugate series, followed by two doses of the polysaccharide PPSV23, separated five years apart. And for adults over 65 who have never received a pneumococcal vaccine, then they should get either one dose of PCV15, followed one year later by one dose of PPSV23 or just one single dose of the conjugate PCV20 without any additional polysaccharide dose. Going back to the routine schedule, at four months, babies receive their second doses each of DTaP, Haemophilus influenza type B, pneumococcal conjugate, inactivated poliovirus, and rotavirus, and then each of these again at the six-month visit. There's another vaccine introduced at around six months, and this is the influenza vaccine. Six months is the minimum age requirement to receive the influenza vaccine, and this is primarily administered in a two-dose series separated by four weeks during flu season, which is between the months of October through May. And then after that first year, they can get it just once yearly. There's two types of influenza vaccines, the trivalent injection and the quadrivalent nasal spray. But the nasal spray contains live attenuated forms of the influenza virus and thus should not be given to any children under two years old, or in pregnant women, or in patients who are immunocompromised. Moving on, from age 6 to 9 months, children can receive their third and final round of the Hep B vaccine. At 12 to 15 months, children can receive their fourth dose each of the pneumococcal conjugate and haemophilus influenza type B. Also starting at 12 months, children are eligible to receive the live attenuated vaccines MMR and varicella as well as their first round of the inactivated HEP-A vaccine. At 18 months, they get their second and final dose of HEP-A, along with the fourth dose of DTaP. At age 4, they receive their second and final doses each of MMR and varicella, their fourth and final dose of the inactivated poliovirus, as well as their fifth and final dose of DTaP. Then after age 4, there's a nice break for the kids where they don't receive any additional vaccines other than the annual flu shot up until age 11, at which point they receive their first dose of Tdap and then start two new series for HPV and meningitis. HPV can be administered in either a two-dose or three-dose series, depending on their age at the initial vaccination. For example, if they are 14 or younger when they start their HPV series, then they only need two doses. If they are 15 or older when they start their series then they need three doses of hpv and each of these must be separated by at least five months otherwise they will need an additional dose and as for meningitis which also starts at age 11 this is a two dose series with one shot at 11 years and the second at 16 years this series covers against the meningococcal serotypes a c w and y But there is also a newer meningococcal vaccine that covers against meningococcal serotype B, and this is mostly reserved for patients who are high risk or in older adolescents who are going off to live in close quarters with other people, such as in college dorms or army barracks. A few other high yield things to be aware of for vaccines is that there's very few contraindications for vaccines, the main one being a prior anaphylactic reaction to one of the vaccine ingredients. Healthcare workers are often required to provide proof of immunity for various vaccines in the form of titers, and if they are found to be non-immune, then they would need a booster. One exception to this that tends to come up a lot is varicella, wherein a healthcare worker may not have received the varicella vaccine, but reports a prior infection of chickenpox as a child, in which case they do not need titers or a vaccine. However, if they are not vaccinated against varicella, and they don't remember ever having chickenpox, then they usually just get the varicella vaccine without the need for titers. Individuals who received the live attenuated BCG vaccine, often given in other countries to protect against tuberculosis, may result in a false positive skin test for tuberculosis. The shingles vaccine is a two-dose series going by the brand name of Shingrix, which is an inactivated form of the zoster virus, and this starts at age 50. There used to be a live attenuated shingles vaccine named Zostavax, but that particular brand has been discontinued, and the CDC now recommends Shingrix in order to protect against shingles even if a patient has received Zostavax in the past. And lastly, for travel purposes, all routine vaccinations we already discussed are recommended before leaving the country, and in certain endemic regions, like South America, the yellow fever vaccine is also recommended. The dengue virus vaccine is only recommended for those living in dengue endemic regions, such as Puerto Rico, American Samoa, US Virgin Islands, and these individuals must have laboratory evidence of prior dengue infection. And that's about it. There's only one way to end an episode like this, and that's with some practice questions. Question one. A two-month-old ex-full-term baby boy is brought to your office by his mother for a well-child visit. She reports he is doing well, is exclusively breastfeeding, is not taking any medications or supplements, and that there are no complaints. Physical exam reveals a smiling baby who is able to lift his head up while prone, but is unable to fully roll over onto his back. Other than routine vaccinations, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Advise supplementation with vitamin D drops. B. Genetic analysis for various degenerative disorders. C order a serum iron panel, or D, no further interventions are indicated. Answer, A, advise supplementation with vitamin D drops. This two-month-old baby is exclusively breastfeeding, which while encouraged, however, does place the baby at risk for vitamin D deficiency needed for proper absorption of calcium and phosphorus necessary for proper bone development. Genetic analysis is not indicated for this baby based on its motor development, as rolling over is not an expected milestone until they reach 4 months of age. And an iron panel would be useful in delineating various causes of anemia. However, there is no indication for routine iron screening in otherwise healthy children. Question 2. A mother calls your office with a question about car seats for her 3-year-old son. According to your records from his third-year well visit last week, He weighs 32 pounds and is 37 and a half inches tall, placing him at the 50th percentile for both height and weight for his age. What car seat recommendations would you make for this child? A, he should ride in a rear-facing car seat in the back seat of the vehicle. B, he should ride in a forward-facing car seat in the back seat of the vehicle. C, he should ride in a forward-facing car seat in the front seat of the vehicle. Or D, he should ride in a booster seat in the back seat of the vehicle. Answer, A, he should ride in a rear-facing car seat in the back seat of the vehicle. Current car seat recommendations by the AAFP are as follows. Infants and toddlers should always be in rear-facing car seats. Once they reach age 2 and are at least 40 pounds, they can then switch to a forward-facing car seat. However, this baby is still only 32 pounds, and thus will need to stay in a rear-facing car seat until 40 pounds. Once they outgrow the forward-facing car seat, they may then switch to a booster seat. Once they reach age 8 and are at least 4 foot 9, they can then transition to sitting in a regular back seat, as long as they are able to sit with their back flat against the back of the seat with their knees bent at the edge of the seat. And children younger than 13 should always sit in the rear seat and never up in the front. Question 3. A 16-year-old girl presents to your office for a well visit. She is doing well in school, is very active in sports, and has no complaints. Upon further questioning, you'll learn that she has not yet had her first menstrual period. Physical exam today shows that she is at the 80th percentile height for her age, breast development is at tanner stage 4, and external genital exam is also at tanner stage 4. You perform a speculum exam and observe a bluish bulging mass within the vaginal introitus. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Karyotype analysis. B. Oral estrogen therapy until breakthrough bleeding occurs. C. Surgical excision of the mass. Or D. Contact Child Protective Services. Answer, C. Surgical incision of the mass. This young woman with primary amenorrhea is found to have a bulging mass in the vaginal introitus, which is consistent with an imperforate hymen, and the correct treatment is to perform a cruciate incision on the membrane in order to allow menstruation to occur. Karyotype analysis may be useful if a disorder of sexual differentiation is suspected, such as androgen insensitivity syndrome or perhaps some other chromosomal abnormality such as Turner syndrome. However, the finding of a bulging vaginal mass makes these options much less likely. Oral estrogen therapy is sometimes used in cases of primary amenorrhea where the suspected cause is from estrogen deficiency. However, this patient has appropriate secondary sexual characteristics, making this an inappropriate choice. And contacting Child Protective Services is not warranted in this case as there is no reasonable suspicion for abuse. Question 4. You are seeing two adolescent siblings in the office, a healthy 16-year-old boy and a healthy 14-year-old girl. The mom asks if they are due for their HPV vaccines. The 16-year-old boy began his series at the age of 11 and received his second dose two months later. The 14-year-old girl received her first and only dose at age 12. Which of the following statements are true regarding the HPV vaccine dose schedule for these two patients? A. The 16 year old boy has completed his HPV series, and the 14 year old girl requires two more doses of the HPV vaccine one today and another at least five months later. B. Both siblings are adequately immunized against HPV since they both began their series prior to 15 years of age. C. The 16 year old boy and the 14 year old girl each require one additional dose of the HPV vaccine today in order to complete the series. Or D. The 16-year-old boy has completed his HPV vaccine series, and the 14-year-old girl should have a pregnancy test prior to administration of the vaccine. Answer C. The 16-year-old boy and the 14-year-old girl each require one additional dose of the HPV vaccine today in order to complete the series. The 16-year-old boy started his HPV series prior to the age of 15, meaning he would only need two doses, However, his second dose was only given two months after the first dose, when the requirement necessitates at least five months between these doses, so he will need one additional dose to complete his series. And for the 14-year-old girl, she just needs one additional dose to complete her series, but pregnancy is not a contraindication to receiving the HPV vaccine, so a pregnancy test would not be indicated.